0: How does describing someone by a certain term or label influence how others think or feel about them? And what consequences can that have if it becomes a negative social norm? Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and on today's Fordham Conversations, I'm joined by phone with Zane Mirab, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Fordham University. Professor Mirab's research looks at the terms gay and homosexual and whether they're really synonymous. Then I talk with co-founder of the Reclaim Pride Coalition, Natalie James. We discuss why her group organized the Queer Liberation March and Rally and also discuss some of the key issues involved in the continued fight for LGBTQ rights. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. So let's go straight to it. Are the terms gay and homosexual synonymous?
1: One of the things that the research that uh, we're talking about today shows is that those terms are uh, often used interchangeably, but are not in fact synonymous. Um, One of the things that we talk about in the paper is that homosexual is uh, usually a stigmatizing term that can be interpreted as uh, like a a pathological orientation. um, Whereas gay is a social term uh, that people use as a self-identity um, people may have gay or lesbian friends and they would refer to them that way and they wouldn't refer them to refer to them as homosexual and so one of the things that we talk about in this paper is that um, those terms are not synonymous and in fact they carry uh, significant connotations, both socially and politically.
0: And your research looked at the divide in how Americans talk about people with same-sex attraction. So can you explain your theory and how you used the American National Election Study to test it?
1: Yeah, so uh, the ANES is a survey that's given uh, during every election in the United States, and I can't remember how far back it goes. Um, but it's a, so it's a longitudinal study, and one thing that they did in the twenty twelve ANES survey is they had a survey experiment built in where they asked half of the respondents their attitudes towards rights for homosexuals and the other half asked about gay men and lesbians. And while on the surface the in the aggregate it didn't seem to have an effect which term you used when we parsed out the effect by the type of respondent. So uh, people who are, uh, inc- mostly affiliated with evangelical, uh, churches, uh, and who score high in a concept called authoritarianism, which is basically the idea that people should follow the rule of the law, uh, there's a strong in-group allegiance and out-group, uh, antipathy. We found that for those people, when you use the word homosexual, they were more likely to express less support for uh, people who express same-sex attraction and desire than if you use the term gay and lesbian. And so our theory is basically that that term homosexual has been used by certain people to, to prime a response, right, an outgroup, stigmatizing, pathologizing understanding of gay and lesbian desire that gets kind of triggered in that word. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So you're saying that the, the term homosexual was seen more negatively, uh, but when the term gay was used, it wasn't seen as negatively. Is that correct? Yes. And so our theory is basically, again, which is what I opened with, which is these
1: terms aren't synonymous. Uh, when people think about homosexual, they think about maybe the history of uh, thinking of uh, same-sex desire as a mental illness, which has a long history in the United States. But when people think about someone who is gay or lesbian, they think about maybe a favorite TV character or their friend from work or their niece or nephew or their neighbor. So it's more Um, personal. Yeah, exactly. They think about it more in a personal way. And so that effect of uh, policing the border between the in-group and the out-group kind of disappears for people who are high in authoritarianism.
0: Now, Professor Mirab, your research found that the terms are also used strategically. So can we get into that a little bit more in a sociopolitical way?
1: Sure. Uh, so I think that the, in the article, we open with this anecdote about the Olympic runner Tyson Gay, who was being reported on in conjunction with the Olympics, and there was an uh, a evangelical news website that had printed the story as Tyson homosexual. And it turned out we learned after the fact that basically this website, this news source, had an algorithm built in where they would take stories from the Associated Press and they would search for the term gay and they would automatically replace it with homosexual. Um, and our theory there is, or my guess as to why that news site did that, is to is to um, remove it from the social, again, that my friend, my neighbor, my coworker, my son, daughter... Um, and make it something that is the outgroup of homosexuals. And so in this story about Tyson Gay, it takes on this sort of uh, funny quality to it, right, because his last name is Gay and it got replaced with homosexual. But I think that it starkly reveals the ways in which those terms get used strategically to prime a certain response.
0: And did your research at all ask why people felt they associated these terms differently?
1: No, that we do not have any data on.
0: Okay, uh, so it wasn't. We we don't know if it was religious or culturally based, or do we have any idea?
1: So yes, we did. Um, amongst people who identified as born again Christians, the opposition to what was asked in the survey as homosexual rights was twenty one percent higher for individuals with the highest uh, observed level of authoritarianism. This is in opposition to people who scored at the lowest level. So, again, basically this is in social science what we call uh, an interaction term. Um, But what this means is that, again, people who are born-again Christians and who score high in authoritarianism uh, associate more with the rule of law, preserving boundaries between in-groups and out-groups, believe in, you know, strong discipline for children, et cetera, um, we're 21% more likely to um, have opposition to homosexual rights. So that's something that we know from the survey.
0: And can we get into maybe a little bit of history about each word? Can you give Mm -hmm. me some background of the origin of the word homosexual? The the history
1: of homosexual and gay goes to the American Psychiatric Association and using the term homosexual from the DSM to impose a definition on people who experience or express same-sex desire and categorize it as a mental illness. And starting in uh, the late 1960s, so 50 years ago, if you think about the anniversary of Stonewall, people started reclaiming or changing that Term to a self-identification, something they chose themselves. So you can think about the this idea of coming out of the closet, right, and saying things like "gay is good" um, and "I'm not going to be ashamed anymore." It's not a mental illness. It's social identity. It's something that's a political
0: orientation.
1: That's what. I think the 50th anniversary of Stonewall was capturing
0: there. And I would also think if uh, from the psychiatric association, if the foundational belief was that being homosexual was something negative, then it would spur ideas and methods of ways to like reverse it, like it needed to be fixed. Um, That's in the history a little also, Correct.
1: Absolutely, yes. And in fact, just if I can say something real quick to that, sure. it's still part of the history. Uh, in Colorado, recently, they just passed legislation to make it uh, illegal to have conversion therapy take place in the state, right? So conversion therapy is still something that people really hold on to, is this is something that can be reversed because it is a choice or it is a mental illness. Um, other people would say, you know, what I do is none of your business, right? Um, so, yeah, that is that history.
0: And I, I was reading that, I mean, back in the 20s, there was ways to fix being gay uh, by castration or lobotomies or electric shocks. And as you point out, conversion therapy still goes on now. So yeah,
1: there there is a history uh, in the uh, in post-World War II era of, yeah, using electroshock therapy to try to, quote, cure homosexuality. Um this would entail, like, showing people, like, if it was a, a man who was attracted to other men, they would show pictures of attractive men to this person, and uh, they would shock him, right? Um, mm. To try to naturalize a negative response to men.
0: Um. <laughs> so we can see how harmful yeah. a, a term and the definition behind the term can become
1: yeah, definitely, or just what uh, what happens when you use a term like homosexual that is pathologizing that is stigmatizing when you do that, you create the possibilities to dehumanize people, and that is what enables truly horrific things like electroshock therapy putting people uh you know segregating them away from society denying them treatment in the face of an epidemic and here i'm thinking about hiv aids because you dehumanize them you say that is not like us um and therefore they do not deserve care in the same way that other people human beings do
0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Fordham professor Zane Mirup. The research the professor has done looks at the terms gay and homosexual and whether they're really synonymous and why that matters. Has the American Psychiatric Association detached the term homosexual from being associated with a mental disorder or a negative connotation? Yes,
1: the American Psychi- Psychiatric Association, uh, in the face of pressure from gay activists, did declassify homosexuality as a mental illness uh, in the in the seventies.
0: Now, Professor Mirab, your research focused on the term gay and homosexual and the social implications of both. Was there anything in your research that indicated the respondents? we're thinking of other groups, whether they be trans or lesbian or bi or questioning?
1: We don't have the data on that, but that is an excellent question. Um, and I think that future research and research that's currently underway is exploring some of this. I know that one of the frontiers in survey research and political science is trying to find different ways to understand attitudes towards uh, transgender and gender nonconforming people. And so hopefully as those questions get incorporated into surveys like the ANES, we'll be able to know more about what you're
0: asking. Yeah. Now, was there anything that you discovered in your research that surprised you?
2: Hmm. Um,
1: one of the, in my opinion, the coolest social science is the social science that takes something that you kind of know to be true and empirically demonstrates it. And for A long time, I had understood, like in the classroom, for example, if I'm talking with students and they use the word homosexual, I'll usually gently interject and say, you know, that's actually not uh, the term that people who identify that way actually use for themselves. They prefer gay or lesbian, or you should use whatever term people ask you to use, right? Mm. Um, And so I think the most surprising part of this research is that it empirically bore fruit, right, that we were able to see that, yes, which term you use in a survey really matters. And I think that the implications of that are significant, not only politically when thinking about how we talk about different groups, but also uh, in terms of social science. And we want to find that we want to know more about attitudes towards certain groups, and we can't know them unless we're very, very careful about the terms that we use.
0: And when you went into this research, like in the very, very early stages, what did you hope to discover or uncover with your research? And (laughs) did you do it?
1: Yes. Uh, So when I was in grad school, I had a visiting guest speaker. And so I was a grad student and there's like power differentials in these situations. So this is a very established professor who is reporting the results of a survey Uh, and they had used in the survey the terms gay and homosexual interchangeably. And they were getting these really wonky results. And so I, in grad school, uh, very seldom would ask questions of these established professors. Again, this was a visiting professor, or someone visiting for a talk. And I I raised my hand and I said, you know, part of why you might be getting different results is because these terms have different meanings. And the professor (laughs) rolled their eyes at me and very dismissively, uh, passed on the question and moved on to the next Mm. one. And I thought, I am going to find a way to prove my point. And so the publication of this study, along with my co-authors, really was a a nice moment in that regard, I'll say.
0: (laughs) And what do you hope your research is used for next?
1: I hope that it, one, shows survey researchers that it, depending on what they want to learn about uh, certain populations, particularly people who identify as gay and lesbian, uh, they should use the the terms that cor- that those populations themselves use if, it's, if that's if that 's what they're interested in knowing about. Um, the next thing that I hope that this will inspire is further work into how it is that social scientists measure different populations um, and so one of the things that i 'm working on with actually a colleague at Fordham is refining the ways that we ask questions about people's gender identity because right now you can think about a survey or basically any form you fill out for the most part asks you your gender or your sex and it gives you the option of male female or man and woman Um, we're trying to open up the possibilities for asking more nuanced questions to get at people's gender identity which we know to be far more nuanced than just male female or man woman
0: in the future how will that help the lgbtq population?
1: There's so many different things that are happening uh, that are important for the LGBT community and lots of discrimination that people face. But I think probably most pressing is the ways that certain people are targeted for violence. And here I'm thinking about uh, the epidemic rates of violence directed against black trans women, for example. And so what I'm hoping that the refinement of these measures and these questions can help us. Especially when we start to look at things intersectionally, right, Um, at the intersection of various uh, axes of identity, when we start looking at those things, we can better understand what is going on, um, and hopefully uh, address those issues.
0: I I was thinking in terms of something as simple as a driver's license, Um, yeah. You know, and and how if you're if you're Going through some uh, transition, and your license has a female picture on it, but that's not how you identify. Then you know legally there could be some some problems with that.
1: Yeah, and I'll say you know one of the things that I'm excited to see rolled out at Fordham to make this, to take this from the level of like the state or the national and and bring it back down to the the university itself is that there's going to be opportunities for students to update their profile pictures, uh, on their identification. Um, we have the rollout of a chosen name policy that different departments, including my own political science have adopted that allow people to say which name they want to be used in the classroom. And I think all of those things will help to head off that moment that you're describing when someone's official, documentation mism- doesn't uh, reflect who they are, or how they identify, and who they are in the world. Uh, so I think all of those things will be positive developments for sure.
0: Now that it's 50 years after Stonewall, what do you think, issue-wise, is the next big thing that should be focused on in the LGBTQ community?
1: I think that uh, the things that the LGBT community should focus on are not removed from broader social issues that we see really coming to a head today. And so here I'm thinking about immigration. Uh, one of the things that we know is that um, people who are undocumented, who identify as trans or gender nonconforming or gender queer, are disproportionately negatively impacted by uh, detention practices that segregate people by sex. Um, you can think about the corresponding uh, incarceration of people by sex. And so you're putting, you know, people who identify as women in, um, you're incarcerating them with people who identify as men. Um, all of these things uh, end up making lots of uh, dangerous circumstances for these individuals. And I think a lot of people would say, you know, Bill de Blasio, I think last year, announced that New York City would incarcerate trans people according to the gender that they identify with uh, so that they would be more comfortable. And I would argue that trans people would be more comfortable if they weren't incarcerated in the first place. Um, and so I think that this is a long way of saying that I think that we need to be looking at these practices that dehumanize people, that focus on segregating them out of society and ask, why do we do this? Um, What sort of attitudes about uh, crime and gender and race and belonging and citizenship are we bringing into the world that creates precarity for people when you incarcerate or detain them?
0: Uh, Professor Mirab, you said that um, you had partners in this research. Who were they? Yeah, my co-authors
1: were uh, fellow graduate students when I was at the University of Minnesota. Everyone is scattered now, but they were Brianna Smith, uh, Matthew Mata, Tim Mithy Callahan, and Marissa Faze.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your research and coming on Fordham Conversations.
1: Oh, thank you so much for the interview. This was a real pleasure. (laughs)
0: Last Sunday, one of the largest pride parades for the gay rights movement was held in Manhattan. But before the fun and festivities of that event, another more serious event took place. I'm Robin Shannon talking by phone with Natalie James, co-founder of the Reclaim Pride Coalition, the organization that also founded the Queer Liberation March. She shares why they believe the Queer Liberation March and Rally was needed. And we also discuss some of the key issues involved in the continued fight for LGBTQ rights. Uh, thanks for uh, being on my show, Natalie. Thanks so much for having me. Why decide to host a counter march and rally to the Pride Parade?
2: First of all, to give a little background, um, this Reclaim Pride Coalition started in early 2018. It uh, formed out of groups that had marched together in a resistance contingent in the existing Pride Parade. Uh, These groups included groups like ACT UP and Housing Works, which focus on HIV AIDS advocacy, uh, along with other LGBTQ community groups and leftist groups, like the group I'm part of, Democratic Socialists of America, Uh, that resistance contingent was dissolved by the organizers of the Pride Parade for the 2018 Pride Parade. Uh, without very much notice, they told the contingent that we could not march as a contingent and that instead we could only march as individual groups. So we basically started you know, meeting about that issue, but then soon discovered we shared a lot of other concerns. Um, we shared concerns that although it was claimed by the parade art organizers that in numbers, community groups were well represented and there were many groups there, uh, in visibility and in presence, the corporate and commercial domination was just really overwhelming. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we felt that it was inappropriate to give the police uh, a police contingent a place of honor within the New York Pride Parade, given the history of how the event started uh, with um, the a police attack on bar patrons at the Stonewall Inn uh, and also uh, the ongoing uh, racist violence against uh, people of color perpetuated by the New York Police Department and uh in particular towards transgender women of color. And then we had other issues, not just about the contingent, but about the way that um the uh the, the event was policed, you know, so the the very, very heavy interlocking uh, barricades that de- destroyed the spontaneity and audience interaction. It used to be in earlier days, uh, which many of our members remembered, uh, people could be on the sidewalks and they could feel moved to participate in a march and uh, say they weren't out of the closet yet or say that they, they were new to New York or young and not connected. They could just get off of the sidewalks into the street and have a wonderful um you know, connection and empowering events. That's simply not possible anymore with these barricades. And uh, last year, there had also been a wristband requirement. So they went along with the wristbands, and they also, interestingly, went along with a very radical route change. It was um, starting from the uh, the west side of Manhattan, marching in a sort of U shape, and ending uh, in a meaningless location in the upper, on the east side of Manhattan in the 20s. Um, so. So those were some of the issues we had. We formulated formal demands to try to dialogue with the Heritage of Pride, which organizes the Pride Parade. The, the, and they were not receptive to our demands. Uh, in fact, they ignored them. We, we, we delivered these demands um, to them as well as to the New York Police Department, um, as well as to the mayor's office. And were largely ignored, um, except for being allowed to march again as a resistance contingent.
0: Did they give you a reason um,
2: for that, Natalie? Um, Any legitimate they,
0: reasons why they they ignored your demands?
2: They did not. And, um, and that was part and parcel to a long standing pattern of behavior um, between Heritage of Pride, which organizes this very symbolic and important event for so many people, and the community, um, which has often felt alienated by the fact that they haven't been transparent, they haven't been open to community input or democratic process. Their style is more we make announcements and the decision is already made when we make the announcements. you know? So they gave us no reason. Uh, they, they, they didn't really engage in meaningful uh, dialogue with us on, on any of these points, but they did say we could march as a resistance contingent again. So we marched and uh, we found it to be a very disappointing, unsatisfactory experience. Um, we were with, left waiting for hours, which I'm sure pe- people, uh, listeners that that have participated in the New York Pride Parade could commiserate with. We were left waiting for hours. Um, By the time we started marching, uh, the the crowds, not only were the television cameras off, but the crowds had dispersed. um, and, And some of the really important groups that were with us, like ACT UP, couldn't have that sort of outreach potential in terms of either television or even just interacting with the the viewers you know um so it was an unsatisfactory experience many many of these activists felt disrespected they felt really uh, disillusioned with it and really between that experience between the ongoing sort of alienation from the event and, and the 50th anniversary of stonewall we were inspired this year to make Uh, a a people's protest march, the Queer Liberation March, with no corporate sponsors, with no corporate floats, and with uh, no police contingent.
0: Now, a few people I spoke with who attended your march and rally said it had the feel of those political marches done in the 1960s. Was that the goal? Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. Uh, the goal, uh, of Reclaim Pride was to, is to spark activism. Uh, it's to, to go back to those early days. Those early days weren't, you know, of activism and particular, the Gay Liberation Front, which even our name sort of echoes, so the Queer Liberation March with the Gay Liberation Front, and also we traced the same route that they took in 1970, the year after the riots, um, you know, starting near near Stonewall, going up 6th Avenue and ending in Central Park. That was the same route that was done in 1970. So we were very intentional about wanting to harken back to the past and want, wanting to reclaim that radicalism. Before, you know, equality wasn't enough. Merely fitting in with the norm wasn't enough. Merely fitting into a corporate sort of um, a corporate framework and and doing well for, for a certain class of our of our community typically white middle class or upper upper class um uh, gays and lesbians that wasn't enough you know uh in the early days they wanted real li- you know liberation they wanted uh real economic and social justice for the- for everyone for everyone in our community and for everyone in our society um so uh, to me um we you know we really need to return to those values And we need to return to demanding things like universal health care, housing justice, um, anti-war, climate justice, in addition to uh, elevating the threats to our community, uh, in particular, transgender women of color and black transgender women.
0: And these are some of the issues uh, the Reclaim Pride Coalition is focused on. Do you have a particular order in how you are going to tackle each of these issues?
2: Well, what we wanted to do um, was a um, we were primarily focused on creating a a um a people's protest march that we wanted to have uh, a good turnout to that we wanted to be symbolic and powerful in that in that way um, you know we wanted it to be an educational event um, but similar to Occupy Wall Street, we didn't necessarily have specific demands and we didn't necessarily have uh, structures within our organization to press for demands, we were more focused on this, this symbolic project, um, which we also thought was very important. That said, I personally believe that Occupy uh, helped to change the world in many ways, uh, even though it was a symbolic project, even though it didn't have specific demands or structures. Um, it educated the public about income inequality, about poverty, about the role that banks and corporations and Wall Street pay- play in our society. And that played an incredibly important role. And I think, for instance, was an essential component in in the, in the Sanders campaign doing in 2016 what no one thought was possible, which was winning 23 states. I don't think that would have happened without, without Occupy being part of the ingredients, you know? Um, so I think that symbols can be really important, and we set out to make as powerful a symbol as we could, calling for a return to radicalism. What the next steps are is really up to the community. We're having a July 24th community meeting at the People's Forum, and it's an open meeting, Uh, for people to come in and express their thoughts and ideas as to what direction this project should go in now. Equality is not enough. Gay marriage is not enough. Serving in the military, that's not enough. We have very, very urgent needs that um, our community needs to unify around and needs to unify with other communities around. And we hope to be part of that process.
0: And about the um, July 24th uh, meeting, where is that going to be held? That will be
2: held at the People's Forum, which is on West 37th Street near Penn Station. In Manhattan. In Manhattan, yeah.
0: My thanks to Fordham University professor Zane Mirab and Reclaim Pride Coalition co-founder Natalie James. You can check out Fordham Conversations on Facebook and Twitter and tune in to the weekly podcast. Until next time, I'm Robin Shannon for Fordham Conversations.